Cool. Let's go, Dave. Well, good morning. My name's Ollie. It's a real uh, privilege to be speaking to you today. Hope everyone's been enjoying their summer. Looks like there's a couple of empty seats around. Maybe there's some people enjoying their summer this morning. Um, we just got back from our family holiday yesterday, actually, so we've been having a, a good British family holiday. Love a British family holiday. Um, I was just thinking recently, actually, about a, a holiday that I took a few years ago to the Lake District. So I went up there, and there's this one day that kind of particularly sticks out in my memory. Um, so we were on a walk. I was walking along a footpath through some uh, kind of agricultural land, a perfect, very picturesque scene, if you know that part of the world. Um, the wheat was kind of ready to be harvested, all growing in pleasing straight lines at exactly the same height. Uh, the hedgerows were perfectly trimmed. There were cattle grazing on the hillside over there. I think you can kind of picture this very pretty scene. And as I walked along through this kind of ordered, structured landscape, uh, I came to a fence that ran across the footpath. Uh, and I opened the gate, um, and you kind of closed the gate behind you and then opened a second gate and closed that behind you and entered what felt like a different world. See, what I'd stumbled on was an area of ancient woodlands, trees of hundreds of years old. Now, the fence was there to stop the deer getting in. And without deer nibbling the kind of wildflowers and the saplings, the vegetation changes completely. It was a really amazing place. It was lush and vibrant and verdant and productive. And relative to the kind of order and structure outside, yeah, it was a little bit messy. There were saplings growing where probably there shouldn't have been, but it was extremely beautiful. This place had been designated a triple SI, a site of special scientific interest. And that meant it got kind of special protection, and there were people whose job it was to look after it and make sure that the kind of unique nature of the place was maintained. Why am I telling you all of this? Well, over recent weeks, I've been convinced by God, to be honest, in no uncertain terms, that I have been constructing fenced-off triple SIs in my spiritual walk. Not sites of special scientific interest, but sites of special spiritual interest. Let me tell you what I mean by that. There are times in my week and parts of my year where I expect to see Jesus move, where I expect to hear from him, where I expect to see the miraculous. Sunday mornings at church, small group nights, my uh, kind of quiet time, prayer time. In those times, if you looked in from the outside, at their best, they would look lush and productive and vibrant. But I know that the other side of the fence, there are bits of my life where, to be honest, I don't really expect to see much of Jesus. And frankly, I quite like the sort of ordered structure that comes in those times relative to the sites of special spiritual interest that I've constructed. But I'm pretty convinced that that's not what the Christian life is supposed to look like. We're going to look this morning at a story of Jesus completely failing to read the map, of him stepping outside of the triple uh, SI, the site of special spiritual interest that we might have created for him, and doing something holy and eternal and miraculous and significant in, frankly, a fairly unlikely context. It's a story that you'll probably have heard many times before. I certainly have. But as I was preparing this, I found new challenge for me in it, and I believe there's new challenge for many of us. Let's, let's pray before we open the Bible, shall we? Jesus, we thank you for what you've done for us, for the trees we've been remembering this morning, that you are solid rock beneath our feet, that you've redeemed us, and while all around is sinking sand, yet you are reliable and trustworthy. Jesus, as we come to you this morning and as we read a story about your life, we, we ask, would you speak to us? Holy Spirit, would you make our hearts 
uh, malleable. Would you come and, and, and use us, change us as we open your word together? Amen. So by way of a bit of context, um, a little less than 2,000 years ago, two Jewish men met for a chat. And the purpose of their conversation was very clearly defined because they had decided that their children were going to marry the one man's son and the other man's daughter. And that was how it worked at that point. And they had met together partly to catch up because they were old friends, but also partly because they needed to thrash out the terms of betrothal. They needed to agree on how that was all going to work. And the first thing they needed to do was to decide on what they both thought was a fair bridal price. This was a sum of money that the groom's family would give to the bride's family. And a lot of that would end up being passed directly onto the bride. Once they decided how much uh, that needed to be, they then decided the groom's father negotiated on behalf of his son what he thought was a reasonable bridal gift. This was a, a, another sum of money that the, that the groom would give to his wife on their wedding day. And because of these two things, the bride brought some wealth of her own into the marriage. So once all the decisions had been made, once all the conversations had been had, um, they both went back to their respective families to make preparations. The bride's family went back uh, to their house, and the bride went with them, and her job over the next little while was just to wait. She had to keep herself pure until her husband came to collect her. The groom's job, on the other hand, a little more in-depth. He had quite a lot that he needed to do. The first thing he needed to do was to prepare the bridal chambers, because the tradition was that his new wife would come and live in his father's house. I don't know whether that sounds nice or nasty to some of you, but that was the tradition at the time. Um, he needed to convert, basically, a bachelor pad into a marital home. So I, I imagine he kind of painted the walls and bought some scatter cushions, that sort of stuff, um, and got everything ready. Um, and at the same time, he also needed to start preparing the wedding itself. And there were things like uh, a venue to sort out, decorations, food to choose, wine to select, uh, the guest list need to be, needed to be considered, and there was a lot to do. But after a year or so of preparation, everything was ready. Now, by convention, he was supposed to turn up completely unannounced to his bride's house. But it was considered relatively good manners to at least give her some warning. And so he, bought, he hired some trumpeters, and he got some people to kind of announce his arrival. Um, and then his wife had, I don't know, I suppose a few minutes at least to prepare herself. Uh, and then he, went, he arrived, and he collected her, and they processed through the town um, back to his father's home. And there there was a wedding um, ceremony, a small ceremony for probably just close family. After that, the final preparations could be made for the wedding feast. This had a much wider guest list, friends, family, people in the town. Um, and the final preparations for that began to be made. The food was getting cooked, I, I suppose, and the wine was getting chilled to just the right temperature. The decorations could go up in the venue. Everything was getting ready, final preparations. Meanwhile, out on uh, in the countryside, there was a, to be honest, wildly eccentric man by the name of John the Baptist. Um, he had been baptizing people in the River Jordan and telling them that the Messiah, the one that Jesus had been waiting for, who was going to save them, was coming soon. And then there was this one day when he looked up and he saw Jesus of Nazareth, one of his relatives, coming towards him. And inspired by the Holy Spirit, he, he burst out, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this was a massive, massive moment. Right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, it was the first time he'd been publicly recognized in front of all these people as the Messiah. It was a huge spiritual occasion for Jesus, day one. The next day, Jesus was walking along and he came across some, what well, they appeared kind of pretty ordinary guys. 
But Jesus had chosen them, and he called them, and he required them to follow him, and they did. And what appeared like ordinary guys actually turned out to be anything but. They were utterly extraordinary, because it was with these 12 people that Jesus would co-labor to found his church on earth and so change the course of history. Day two. So after two massively significant days for Jesus, the first recognition of him as the Messiah, and on the second day, uh, choosing and calling out these really significant followers of his, he seemed to have a bit of a day off. Let's pick the story up in John chapter 2, shall we? It says this. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee, the wedding I was talking about before. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Let's pause there for a second. If you go to a wedding, at some point during the day, someone will use the phrase special day. Right? That is the rules. You have to say it at some point. And I remember my own wedding, and it was a special day. I'll probably always remember that day. But let me ask you this question. How many weddings have you been to? I actually don't know if I would be able to count. Now, they're all special in their own way, right? But I sort of know what to expect. I'm going to turn up. There's going to be some socializing. I don't want to use the word ordinary, but relative to the two days that Jesus had just had, the kind of massive spiritual occasions, this feels a bit like a day off. But that was about to change. Verse 3, very simple little phrase. When the wine was gone. Now then, how can the family possibly have let this happen? They have had a year to prepare this wedding. Do you imagine that they left the quantity of wine to chance? Surely not. There is only really one sensible explanation for how they managed to run out of wine, and it is this, the guests drank more than they were expected to. (laughs) Now, in some ways, that's quite funny, right? But at the same time, this is a problem for the family. Word is going to spread. Their honor is at stake. There is no doubt that this is an issue. I guess if I were in that position, I'd be wondering whether I could get away with a trip to the off-license before anyone noticed that we had made a massive mistake. But that wasn't Mary's response. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Mary went straight to Jesus, and I find that a little bit strange. Because I've read the Bible, and I have been in church for a little while, and I kind of figure I know what a Jesus problem looks like. I know the sorts of things that Jesus does. And this doesn't really feel like a Jesus problem to me. There are no lepers to cleanse. There's no healing to be done. Um, There are no sermons to preach, no parables to deliver. Doesn't really feel like a Jesus problem. Everyone's drunk too much and the wine's run out. But Mary went straight to Jesus. What drove her to him? Was it the fact that she was there around the time of his birth and she heard the promises that were made over his life and she knew that this was no ordinary man? Maybe it was faith in that that drove her. Maybe it was a relationship with Jesus forged over the whole of his life, actually, um, that meant that she knew that she could trust him. Maybe it was experience of having lived in the same house as him and knowing what he could do that made her think, no, Jesus is the place I need to go with this. Or perhaps it was all of those, faith, relationship, experience, but something made Mary go to Jesus in what to me feels like a relatively unlikely circumstance. Look at Jesus' response. Dear woman, why do you involve me, Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. Notice, not this isn't really my thing, not that's outside of my remit, but I'm not sure the timing's right. But in a way that only a mother could, Mary basically ignored Jesus entirely and said, 
uh, it says, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. See, Mary's faith involved other people. Now I want you to try and put yourself in the position of these servants. These servants are amazing, by the way. Um, You're at work. There is a proper 100% full-scale crisis going on. Your boss is stressed, and to make matters worse, your boss has probably had a little bit too much to drink as well. Your boss is stressed, and it's on you to fix the problem. You ever been in that situation? Maybe not with the boss having drunk too much, hopefully not anyway. But it's on you to solve that problem. I know from experience what I want in that situation. I want a sensible, practical, rational solution. I want to be able to go back to my boss and say, right, I've identified the problem. I've nailed it down completely so I can say this is what the issues are. Ideally, I want to be able to blame somebody so it's their fault. And then I've contacted this person and I've emailed this person and I've got this contractor coming in. This is the timeline. This is how we're going to fix it. So that even if the sky falls in on the problem, at least the boss will think that I've done something sensible. I imagine that's what the servants are hoping for. Let's see if it's what they get, shall we? Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind the Jews used for ceremonial washing, each holding from 80 to 120 litres. So we are talking big old pots, right? I guess they were there because there were a lot of Jewish people at the wedding, uh, and so there were a lot of ceremonial cleansing that needed to happen before they could meet together in this way. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. How much would you love to have heard the conversation as they filled those jars up with water? I imagine they were trying to work out what he was going to do with 600 litres of water. I mean, maybe they thought this new rabbi is going to use them for some elaborate sermon illustration, perhaps about the danger of drinking too much. But whatever they thought he was going to do with it, they knew that 600 litres of tap water is not the solution to a wine crisis, right? But things are about to get worse. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. Hang on a minute. You want me, when my boss is stressed about the fact that there's no wine, to take him a wine glass full of tap water. How well do you think that is going to go down? Now, with hindsight, we know what happens at the end of this story, right? So it's kind of easy for us to think, oh, of course, the servant should have just done it. But would you have been brave enough to do that? Would you have been willing to obey Jesus in that moment? I'd like to think I would, but I'm not so sure. I imagine fairly nervously, they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He didn't realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water, they certainly knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you've done the opposite, really. You've saved the best until now. You see what Jesus has done here? He has taken clearly sacred religious items and he hasn't used them to provide a solution to the problem, which would be a glass of mediocre wine for each of the guests present. He's used them to provide 600 odd litres of the very best wine that had been served all day. This is a massive overreaction to the problem. This is ludicrous generosity in what to me feels like a pretty unlikely circumstance. Wouldn't you say? It didn't really feel like a Jesus problem in the first place, but Jesus has provided lavishly and generously. And why? Well, it says it in verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. It was all about a demonstration of Jesus' glory because, you see, the king had arrived. 
The kingdom was here, and there were no dark corners that it couldn't reach into. There was no place anymore for what used to be the case with sacred places and sacred times and sacred things. Now the kingdom was going to go out into unlikely places. See, Jesus didn't just talk to Jews in the temple. He healed Romans. He prophesied to Samaritans. And he did so on hillsides and street corners and town squares and in people's homes. The kingdom had arrived, and it was going out to places that you wouldn't normally expect to find it. There are people who have said that you can't actually really understand this story unless you also consider the Last Supper. If you do those two things together, then what you see is empty religious vessels that were used to make people ceremonially clean, filled with the generous, lavish gift of wine. The very picture that Jesus would later go on to use to say, this is like my blood poured out for the forgiveness of many, not to make you ceremonially clean, but to wash us whiter than snow so that we can be presented as blameless before God. I'll leave it to you to decide whether that's a a stretch too far on this story. But it reminds me of uh, a verse from Galatians. It says uh, this in Galatians 2 verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, not just on Sunday mornings, but on Tuesday mornings and Wednesday evenings and Saturday mornings and Sunday lunchtimes, the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And in that worldview, in that picture of the gospel, and this is the gospel, right? In that picture of the gospel, the old me is dead. And every single second of the life that I live as the new me is lived in Christ. In that picture, in that theology, there's no place left for triple SIs. There's no place left for here are my uh, sites of special spiritual interest over here. And over here, relatively speaking, is somewhere that I don't really expect a whole lot of Jesus to be working. Now, if I'm over here, then Jesus is over here because he's living in me. And I should be expecting to see him working through me. And although that's very exciting, it's also quite challenging. See, I see two massive sources of challenge in this story for me. The first is to ask, did you notice that Mary went to Jesus with a really, really simple prayer? Her her, her point to Jesus is, they've run out of wine. There's no wine left. I reckon if I'd been in that situation, I'd have recognized the fact that this isn't really a Jesus problem in the first place. And so I'd have been trying to justify why I was going to him in the first place. I reckon I'd have gone to him and said, look, Jesus, here's the problem. We've run out of wine. The honor of this God-fearing family is at stake here. There is an opportunity for you to demonstrate your glory. There's an opportunity for you to show yourself to the non-Christians that are here at this wedding. Um, there are, there, I will be trying to explain to him why this was actually Jesus' business. That's not Mary's response. Mary's response is simply to involve him in her day-to-day, whether it seems like a time when you would expect Jesus to be at work or whether it doesn't. She involved him. I want to be more like Mary. How about you? I want to ask him. I want to involve him because I know that there are times in my life when problems and situations arrive and I go to Jesus and I pray. But really, I also know that there are many times when a problem or a situation has arisen and I only realize after the event I didn't involve him. I didn't go to him. I didn't pray. Very often that will be because that problem arose in a circumstance that I wouldn't necessarily normally expect Jesus to be present in. I don't think that's good enough for my faith anymore. I feel like God is challenging me and calling me out and saying, I want to be involved in everything. 
I want to be there when you're at work on a Wednesday morning and something's gone wrong and you're stressed. I want you to come to me with that. The first challenge for me is to ask. The second challenge that I see in this is to obey. You know, I've never noticed before um, preparing this that the servants in this story are incredible examples of faith. Now, these uh, men and women are at work in a stressful situation. They don't know Jesus. This is probably the first time they've met him. Um, and they obey him, I would imagine, nervously. But as a consequence of their obedience, they get to be part of something that we're still looking at near enough 2,000 years later and using as an example of faith. I wonder whether they would have been so quick to obey had Mary not encouraged them to do so. Maybe they would, but I suspect somehow not. I think there's a little challenge in there for us to be encouraging one another to obedience. Um, but also, just as an example, these, these servants receive an instruction from Jesus, and it is outrageous. It is not a solution to the problem facing them. It's ridiculous, actually. But they do it, and as a result, the miraculous occurs. Makes me wonder, could Jesus have provided wine any other way? Did he have to use these ceremonial water jars? Did the servants have to fill them up? Did that brave servant, trembling, have to carry the glass of tap water to his master? Well, I don't think so. I think Jesus could have done it some other way, but he didn't. And I'm afraid that Jesus has got form in this area. He could have, hit, have fed 5,000 people without using a little boy's lunch, but he didn't. He could have filled the fishing nets up with fish without first requiring the fishermen to gather them in, walk across to the other side of the boat and throw them down again. But he didn't. It's the same on Sunday mornings. Can he directly heal people? Yes, of course he can. So why is it that so often he uses our hands, the laying on of hands in healing? There's nothing particularly special about these hands. What is it that makes that part of the kingdom? Can he speak directly to people? Yes, of course he can. So why is it that so often, times when God has spoken to me most clearly, it's been through others? Why does he do that? Well, I believe that in the mercy of Jesus, he wants to involve us, he wants to call us in and partner with us so that we get to be part of him doing things that have eternal significance, miraculous things. And that's going to require obedience on our part. Sometimes it's going to require us to do things that look a little bit silly. But if we want to be part of what God is doing, then that's what it looks like sometimes. I feel quite excited about that. So as I come towards a, a finish, let me ask you a couple of questions. Where are the triple SIs in your spiritual walk? Where are the sites of special spiritual interest, the places you expect to meet Jesus? And by extension, are there places in your spiritual walk where you don't really expect to meet Jesus? I feel deeply provoked by this story, by what we've been looking at this morning, to ask and to obey in those contexts. We're going to have a little chance to think about this. Um, just ask Henry to kind of fill the silence a little bit. Why don't you just close your eyes? I want you to try and call to mind the area of your life, the place in your life, the time in your week maybe, when you think it is least likely that you would see Jesus move. Where is that place? Is that your 
workplace? Is it your school, your classroom? Is it your home, maybe? Is it the pub or the, the sports club? Where is the place where you think it is least likely you'll see Jesus move? And then once you've got something in mind, what is it about that place? What is it about that time? What is it about that thing? that has made you feel that the miraculous is unlikely there. Is it that you've prayed into that and seen nothing? Is it that you haven't prayed into that? Is it that that place, that environment just feels so godless that you can't imagine Jesus being there what is it about that that time that place that makes you think it's so unlikely that Jesus will be at work okay we're going to start to ask let's just bring Let's just bring that place, that time, that thing. Maybe there's more than one for you. Let's just bring it before Jesus. We don't need long prayers. She's Mary's example. They've run out of wine. There's not enough money in my bank account. My son doesn't know you. I'm being bullied. What is it for you? Where is it? Let's just bring it before him. might be that you feel the Lord calling you to a particular act of obedience. Do you need to fill some water jars up? Is there something he wants you to do? If you think there is, then don't keep it to yourself. Remember how the servants were more likely to obey because they were encouraged to do so. Speak to someone about it get someone to pray with you about it. Jesus, we thank you that in your kingdom, there aren't any places that are outside of your reach. There's nothing you can't do, Jesus. You're at the wedding because you were invited, so we invite you. You performed the miraculous because you were asked to, so we ask you, Jesus. And you required obedience, so would you make us obedient to you, Lord?